Go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now. Runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. The Green Dot is sponsored by GE Aviation. Well, thank you for joining us again. I'm one of your hosts, Chris Henry, and uh, Hal is out sick, so we're going to miss Hal today, but uh, I think we'll uh, we'll manage to have a pretty cool show. Hal's not here, and he always corrects me. I can say that today we're going to rock and roll, so uh, when he hears this, uh, I'm sure he'll get a chuckle out of that. Um, with me, as always, uh, across the table... Tom Charpentier, Government Relations Director. Awesome. And uh, today, we're, I always love episodes where we have a guest. And we have a really awesome guest uh, that we have managed to persuade to come all the way from sunny and warm California to Oshkosh, Wisconsin in the dead of winter. Um, and uh, I think anybody that, that follows uh, warbirds and air racing uh, is uh, certainly going to be excited to hear this one. Uh, joining us today is Steve Hinton. Steve, thank you so much for coming. Uh, thanks for having me, Chris and Tom. It's a real privilege to be here. So first off, uh, how, are you, how are you liking it so far, the snow? and uh, I love it. It's a nice change from sunshine all the time. You don't get to see snow but in pictures, so uh, to see it and then watch your step on it, it's a new adventure. Well, in the meantime, I'm trying to figure out a way to, a way to stow away in your bag to go back to California because <laughs> uh, I've had it. <laughs> so, um, Well, one of the questions we always ask everybody that comes on um, is, it, you know, is there a certain point in your life that you – did it just sort of set in with you that you wanted to become a pilot? You knew that's what you wanted to do. With regards to being a pilot, probably not one moment. It was kind of just the culture of growing up around uh, the museum in Chino. Um, I don't think I ever didn't want to be a pilot. You know, as a kid, you want to be an astronaut or a baseball player, um, that type of stuff. But as those fantasies quickly went away, that kind of was always just set on being a pilot. Uh, the only time in my career where I was uh, so focused that I knew that I wanted to do something specifically was probably uh, – the air racing bit and uh saw that i think i got bit by that bug real serious um about 2002 that's kind of where i made the determination that you know this is something i want to be involved with now we talked about uh, you mentioned air museum um we're talking about the plains of fame air museum out in chino california you also have a branch out at the grand canyon area that's correct um i mean that air museum is iconic because you know your grandfather ed was saving airplanes as i said yesterday before it was cool (laughs) Yeah, it's it's really been a part of uh, you know the aviation family and, and our family for, certainly for for several years, and it's it's been a a great place to grow up um, and see it evolve and grow. Well, so you mentioned growing up around Plains of Fame. Um, what was that like? I mean, that had to be pretty cool, right? Absolutely, it was an experience. Uh, we had a, a you know a large uh, parts yard out back, and, and you know go to work with my dad, and he'd kind of say, "All right, see you at five o'clock, or see you for lunch." You know, so here you are, a five or six year old running around. I'm surprised I have all my appendages on still and you know, no major uh, scars in life. Uh, but it, it was uh, a lot of fun. And initially just being a kid, you know, to go find two by fours and nail them together and build an airplane that's eight feet long and spray paint it. And then, you know, they'd rip it apart overnight and then the next day you do the same kind of thing. So um, definitely had uh, what I'd still consider a normal tri- childhood growing up at an airport. And again, um, once I got a little bit older, you know, seven, eight, nine, uh, then I really started realizing where I was uh, being surrounded. So, uh, what did you actually wind up soloing in? Uh, soloed a Cessna 150. Okay. 6409 X-Ray. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, uh, actually a, f- a couple friends had 150s at the time, and I was flying the Lescom, uh, but the Lescom doesn't have you know, VOR, the, it, the very pr- primal instruments. So, I uh, needed to fly a 150, and, and I had a lot of fun with that. 
Yeah, for me it was a 152-6350 Quebec. And uh, Chris, well, you had a... It was uh, a Piper Cherokee 140, November 5712 uniform. Yeah, that's uh, awesome. Nice. Isn't that amazing? amazing how it's, yeah, that gets burned in your memory, right? I don't remember any of my girlfriend's phone numbers or anything like that, but uh, I remember that, that tail number. <laughs> More fond memories with the airplanes anyway. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So, so where did you progress from there? Uh, um, you know, after, you, uh, after you get your license, um, what, what was next for you? Uh, got the uh, Cessna 150, and actually that was a funny story because I uh, flew all year with that, and uh, going into my checker, I did the oral, and uh, walked out to the airport with the examiner, and he said, oh, I just had back surgery, I can't climb into a 150. Like, oh, oh, that's going to be interesting, and a friend had access to a 172, so he said, I'll, I'll come back in, you know, three hours or something, go fly with your flight instructor, so quickly got a, you know, went into the 172 and got a feel for that, and then took the check ride there. Um, after that, I flew still a lot in the Lescom, building up tailwheel time. And at that point, kind of deviated onto two courses. Uh, yeah, used a Cessna 210 for high-performance complex rating. Uh, used a Baron for multi-engine ra- uh, rating. Uh, and then tailwheel-wise, it was a lot like the military used to do things at, you know, outside of a Lescom. Um, flew a Stinson L5, which, again, the military didn't use military airplane, though. And that's a great tail dragger because it's real heavy on the controls. Uh, you get a feel for that. There's flaps on it. Uh, went from the L5 into a Stearman, a 450-powered Stearman, and then T6 into a Mustang. So kind of that you know normal progression that the military would have taken. So I wanted to ask you about the, the T6 into the Mustang because I've heard from a lot of people that the P51 is in many ways easier to fly than a T6. And if you want to learn how to fly a P-51, learn how to fly a T6 first, which I guess was the kind of the military's idea, right? Absolutely. I think the military was definitely trying to weed uh, a lot of the pilots that couldn't perform out. So by all means, the Mustang is really easy to fly. Um, I think that the thing is you get into a, a more high-performance airplane, you have to just understand the systems better. So, you know, a Stearman's really going to throw you a curveball. If you can handle that, you know, you go to a T6, which is a little bit easier. Uh, and you get to a Mustang, it's quite a bit easier. Um, but the systems in each airplane gets, you know, they're more complicated. So uh, I, I think it's an evolution of the pilot as well. So, so what's it like the first time you go up and solo a P-51? Uh, you know, fortunately, I had some time in a TF Mustang. Um, so I had that sense of speed down. Although the very first time I flew, uh, I was out in uh, Tucson with my father for the heritage flight training they do in Tucson. And uh, Tom and Dan Freakin own a, a TF Mustang, and I was, I think, 17, 18 at the time. I uh, hadn't even flown the Stearman yet. And uh, my dad said, hey, by the way, on Monday when we go back to Chino, I'm going to put you in the front of the Mustang. So, you know, start thinking about it. Okay, great. Can I see a manual? Nope, nope. I'll just tell you all the numbers over the intercom, and, you know, we'll go from there. So it's like, oh, man. So that was kind of my first taste at the Mustang, uh, which was really eye-opening. Um, the sense of speed i'm not talking about just going fast but you know all the reactions have to be so much quicker uh the altitude you lose in a turn if you're not proficient is you know significant so um that was a big eye-opening experience for me and i think that was a great little taste uh, again i hadn't flown a stearman at that time so then going into a stearman and a t6 you know realizing what was around the corner um the first and then the first time i flew the mustang solo it it, it was a pretty surreal feeling you know not having anybody in the back seat uh, the radios didn't work, so it was a bit of like, oh, come on, <laughs> you know, can't catch a break here. Um, but we got that figured out, and it was an uneventful <clears throat> thing, which was, you know, nice. It kind of reassured you or gave a little confidence that, okay, I am up for this this type of a challenge. What always uh, amazed me was when we had uh, Bud Anderson here, uh, who's just a legend, and he mentioned um, the first time that you know they shipped over as a P thirty nine unit. 
and they get to Europe and they're like, yeah, we didn't send your P-39s. You're going to get Mustangs. And um, he's like, the first time I ever flew a P-51 was the first time I ever sat in one. And wow. the, the ground crews had to come and show us how to start them. And, you know, when that's it, goes, it was really ridiculous. Different you know? time. Yeah. And that's something, too, you think about uh, a lot of people, I think, today build up this persona of a Mustang being difficult or having nasty characteristics. Uh, and my reply to that is always that, you know, they had 200-hour kids fly these during World War II, go to combat. It, it can't be that hard of an airplane to fly. <laughs> yeah, that's so. true. Yeah. Can you tell us about um, how you decided to get into to air racing and, and air, selecting an aircraft? Um, let's see. I, so back to uh, that year 2002, um, up until that time, I'd gone to the air races as a you know small child. I was there all the time and then get into grade school and whatnot. It always falls around the same time. So um, 2002, I went on the weekend to help my dad. Well, he was up there with the T-33 as the pace jet and, you know, clean the wind window or whatever you do at 15 years old, however old I was. Um, anyway, for the start of the gold race, uh, the unlimited gold race on Sunday, uh, it takes place out in front of the grandstands. They do this lineup and, you know, a circus kind of introduction type of thing. Uh, and we're walking down the lineup. Uh, my dad, you know, offering good luck to all the pilots. And at the very end of that lineup was a P-51 named Strega. Um, up until that point, we're walking past these Sea Furies and, you know, the Bearcat and just these big – I was never real into radial engines anyway. <laughs> but anyway, you get all the way down to the end of this thing, and uh, here's Stregan. It looks tiny by comparison uh, to these larger aircraft. And the finish on – I've just never been up near something like that. The finish on the wing smooth, you know, the paint and et cetera, et cetera. So at that point, I really kind of fell in love with that airplane uh, and, and Mustangs in general. Um came home and kind of went through my parents attic and ended up finding a bunch of my dad's air race memorabilia from the 70s and 80s that was all just in a trunk uh he found his world speed record trophy and a bunch of photographs and you know uh, artifacts and so i quickly plastered my bedroom you know from the top of the ceiling down to the bottom of the floor with all these air racing things and uh, became inundated with it and then uh, kind of just slowly set about you know reading doing a lot of history kind of stuff um met tiger bill of stephanie uh a couple years later, actually, that was about the same time I was flying the Lescom. Hey, do you mind if I come up to Shafter, uh, which is Bakersfield, uh, see your airplane? Strago was the closest airplane to Chino at the time, and or probably still is, uh, air racing-wise. So uh, he said, yeah, no problem. I'm not there. I'm out harvesting cotton. Here's the phone number for, uh, actually, Art Vance uh, gave me the phone number for the crew chief. Called the crew chief, you know, work up the courage, half an hour to make the phone call on a Saturday. And, hey, yeah, come on up here anytime. So I started volunteering on weekends, and. Uh, didn't know much what I, what I was doing, so he'd give me a task, and you know whether it was cleaning the airplane or drilling out rivets or, or whatnot. Um, he informed me they were anticipating going racing again in 2005. So, like I said, just volunteered on weekends. And early 2005, he asked if I'd want to go with him as part of the crew. So it kind of one thing led to another, led to another, and took off from there. So we had um, we had Andrew Finley on um, a little while ago, uh, champion of the sport class uh, from this year, um, and. So he was flying a, a Lancer in the sport class. Obviously, you've flown Mustangs and Unlimited. Um, what are some of the key differences uh, between the between the two classes, um, piloting them, the format of the race, things like that? Um, the sport class is guided by a, a set of rules. Um, I'm not sh- sure exactly what they are outside of, you know, it has to be a kid airplane. There's, they're limited to cubic inches. Um, uh, unlimited class by you know nature of the name is unlimited so the only rule is that it's piston powered uh, and then actually when the sport class was coming about they did put a weight restriction that the airplane's got to be at least 4,500 pounds uh, I think everyone was worried about weight turbulence with a smaller airplane 
Um, but I think uh, the sport class is really, if there's a future to Reno, that's going to be it because it's uh, by no means am I saying it's not expensive because racing on any level is expensive. It takes up your time and money and, and so forth. But uh, I think the sport class is more attainable. Um, you know, you can go build a kit in your garage over the course of a couple of years. Uh, which some of the guys do, uh, but you know the level that Andrew's at is a you know full-time commitment and experimenting and you know unfortunately blowing up engines and you know it's it's a difficult learning process. But uh, so in that sense, I think it it's, uh, it mirrors what the unlimited class went through you know 40, 50 years ago, where it was a, attainable. You know, warbirds were around; they weren't expensive. Engines were around, and the, and the knowledge was there. So guys were going out and experimenting and blowing stuff up. Uh, so I think that, you know it's a kind of a cyclical thing um uh and there's a lot of similarities but at the same time you know there, there are several differences also would you say that there's um differences in um in maybe how how close the racing can sometimes be um between the two classes or uh, uh is, is it similar um i think sometimes it's similar other times I, you know it's it's hard to say too uh I've watched several probably more sport golds that are well, I say that, but at the same time, I don't know. I think, you know, it depends on the heat and depends on the race. Uh, I think the sport class is definitely more competitive down in the, in the silver and bronze, uh, whereas in the unlimited you get um, in the way the gold is now. But, you know, it's a lot more stock airplanes that are going out and having a good time. And, you know, you really don't want to blow up a stock. Merlin, that's going to cost you $180,000. Whereas in the sport class, I think throughout the heats, that would be an accurate, accurate statement that the racing's closer throughout the class. You know, and for someone just listening in and, and you know, is uh, maybe only read about the Reno Air Races, can you tell us what it's like to go around a lap at Reno in a Mustang? Um, yeah, it's it's, it's a, a, you know, it's uh, ironic. It's one of those things that's gone in the blink of the eye. Um, and then at the same time, it seems like it takes forever. So it's, it's uh, depending on what scenario you're in, qualifying always seemed to go by real quick. Um the heat races went by quick. When you got to Sunday, it was kind of like, come on, isn't this race over already? Um, so initially, coming down the, the chute, the, what we call it the start chute with the T-33, and you're real busy in the cockpit. And, you know, there's another seven or eight airplanes off your right wing, hopefully if you're on pole position. And uh, the jet transition speed from, you know, being slow so that everybody's joined up in formation starts getting the formation up to speed so that when you take the race start, and that was the big reason why they went from, uh, you know, Bob Hoover, who did it for several years with this P-51, to a T-33, was that the airplanes were getting so much faster that, at, you know, 400 or 350-mile-an-hour release speed wasn't good enough because uh, the airplane's not, <laughs> especially the high-end racers, they're not flying real well there. So the jet's transitioning speed up. Uh, you're quickly bringing power settings up. And there's a, from the time we round what we call Peavine Mountain, to take that start shoot it's real busy you're coming from uh you know a, kind of a cruise maybe a climb power and you have to step the power up in a certain manner and at the same time you're adding methanol uh, adi so there's a manual adjustment valve there there's a manual adjustment valve for the spray bar flows so you got your left hand you know moving four different things you're trying to fly with the, or you are flying with the stick uh, a lot of the systems are on the stick also <clears throat> so we have a coolant door adjustment uh so it, it that first I don't know, 40 seconds, it gets really busy, and you can just feel it build up, build up, build up until, you know, finally you hear that gentleman, you have a race, um, at which point, you know, the throttle's all the way up, and you're diving uh, towards pylon four, and it's kind of a surreal thing there. Uh, there's not a lot you can do as far as maneuvering around or you're not supposed to be doing. Um, 
but you can really start judging people's lines, which I always like that. Uh, it's, it's real interesting to see how people fly the course and where they lose an advantage or gain an advantage. So anyway, you could take that into consider consideration going into pylon four, make the turn. You're pulling about five to six G's initially after the jet releases you. Uh, so it's a pretty good grunt and picking up the pylons, uh, you know, hopefully you can find your line real down low. Um, and the speed that we're traveling, which is uh, 750 feet per second, which is about the same uh, as a 45 caliber bullet at the muzzle velocity. Uh, so you're not looking at the pylon ahead of you. You're looking at three pylons ahead of you uh, because if you look at the pylon in front of you, it's, it's too late. So you really got to make these minute adjustments uh, to set your course up properly. Um, there's some interesting calculation out there, but if you were to fly like 10 feet off of every pylon, 10 feet wider off of every pylon, it ends up being like, 13 or 14 miles an hour slower just 10 feet so there's a lot of precision that goes into it and i, I kind of likened it to you know if you're surfing you're trying to find that perfect wave uh when you're out there racing or qualifying you're trying to you know get that perfect lap together so it's really a, a thrill and by the time you you get done you pull off the race course you know, you're full of adrenaline and um it, it's it's really an incredible experience i was fortunate to be able to do that I've always been kind of fascinated by um, the kind of kind of the the energy management that you plan for if something goes wrong at Reno. Could you walk us through kind of what the emergency procedure is if um, if you do need to abort? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in the gold class, you have it easier because you're doing you know 500 miles an hour, so you can you have a lot of energy um, and you can trade that energy for altitude. So if you were at the, uh, you know 50 feet off the ground going on a pylon and uh, 500 miles an hour. If your engine completely spit the bit and you traded that for altitude, you would get to about 5,000 feet AGL. Uh, and, you know, you consider that a normal traffic pattern is flown at about 800 feet AGL for general aviation. So uh, 5,000 feet, you got plenty of time. Um, the, you know, the flaps on those airplanes are all high drag. and Landing gear is minimal drag. But at the same time, it's just a lot of planning. So um, I think the guys that have it trickier, and they don't know it, though, are like a bronze class racer where maybe you're only doing 320 miles an hour because you're still far away from the runway, but you don't have a lot of energy to trade for altitude. So it gets a little more critical there. Uh, but in training for all this stuff, even to this day, when I fly a race plane, usually every landing we treat it like an engine out. So you're constantly practicing that, you know, where you'd be orbiting up. And then obviously we're not going to push it to race power with a stock engine, but, uh, you know, come up to takeoff power, which is uh, 60 inches and 3000 RPM and dive it down, get to 500 miles an hour, then shut everything off and, you know, glide to land. And it gives you a good perspective. It's good to practice it because you, know, you don't seldom look at a runway from 5,000 feet above it. So you plan these S turns and, you know, real high energy type of uh, speed management. Well, talking about speed management, I guess we need to talk about the world uh, speed record. Um, tell us how that came about. Um, again, probably got sparked by finding uh, that trophy in, in my parents' attic. But um, it was kind of a funny, funny scenario. Uh, Rod Lewis, uh, who owns Rare Berry and several other Warbirds, has a fantastic collection out in San, San Antonio. Uh, after um, he had a flying at his ranch every year and. After I won in 2009, he invited me out to the ranch and, hey, would you mind giving a talk? Uh, John Penny's here giving a talk on the, on Rare Bear, would you know, talk about Strega. Sure. And uh, John gave, gave a talk for about 20 minutes, uh, talked about the three-kilometer record, which Rare Bear held. Uh, and uh, I got up there and talked about the same sort of stuff. And Anyway, a gentleman in the audience that night is by the name of Joe Clark, who owns a company called Aviation Partners, and he simply just asked the question, you know, why haven't you done that with Strega? Go for a speed record. And, well, it's like, you know, 
it's a big cost. There's not prize money, you know, that sort of thing. And he said, well, I'd be interested in, 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 you know, teaming up with you to do something. So, you know, here's my card. Let's stay in touch. So that was kind of the initial going from just a, r- a random dream to, oh, maybe this could be a goal. And it evolved over time with that. It, it didn't work out with Strega for several reasons, um, which are fine because uh, we had, you know, plan on doing that in 2012, 2013, something like that. Uh, and that and that fell through. Uh, but kind of kept the contact relationship open with Joe and, and Bob Button, who owned uh, Voodoo, was real excited about it right from the first year. And was like, yeah, you know, put the put the put the reins on, and you know we got to get the airplane up to speed first at Reno before we can, you know, attempt a world speed record. So that again was an evolution of the airplane, but uh, it really was a dream come true to be able to try and do that um, or get to go for that record. It's so different from flying at Reno. Um, I'd heard that from other guys that have done it before, but it really is a whole different environment. It, you, you know, you're focused on your altimeter. You never look at your altimeter at Reno. So lots of different things in the environment. It is nice, though. There's uh, Where we did it was a private ranch up in Idaho, and the the valley was uh, 40 miles long by 10 miles wide, and there's not another soul in sight out there. So it was really nice to have, you know, all the airspace to yourself. Um, hopefully we'll get a, a you know, chance to take another crack at it again. I remember uh, I can tell you where I was. Uh, it, it was interesting because it was the same weekend they unveiled Dottie May, the P-47. And I was at Napa, uh, Napa for that. And it was cool because, like, news would keep breaking in. They're like, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're taxiing out now and stuff like that. It was just – it was really – there was a real sense of excitement even there. Yeah. Um, which I haven't uh, – you know, I haven't always uh, seen in aviation where people were – they were amped up and kind of keeping a yeah, yeah. finger on the pulse. Yeah. It's, it's funny, you know, traveling around now, how many people, you know, I was watching that when it was live on this and that. And it's, it's funny. Cause it, you know, I think about this, it's an obscure record, you know, unless you know what it is, it's just something else. But, uh, I think as far as, you know, especially aviation history, you look at the Jimmy Doolittle set that record, you know, the Wright brothers held that record, Glenn Curtis, you know? Um, so I think it's that one record in the scope of aviation history. That's always kind of stood the test of time. Uh, whereas, whereas other records are, you know, constantly being set, but uh, you can follow that record back to day one. That's exciting. Uh, when you're going for a record attempt like that, uh, thinking about some of the other variables you have to control for, uh, like what kind of weather are you looking for for something like that? Is there a particular day pressure-wise, things like that you're looking for? A- absolutely, yeah, good question. Um, and it kind of baffles a lot of people, but with the Mustang, we're looking for a really hot day. Uh, and, you know, engine horsepower, you want a cold day, dense air. Um, but... W- like the Mustang, we're making hopefully about 3,400 horsepower. Uh, when we attempted the record, it ended up only being about 3,000 horsepower. But it, to say that we're horsepower limited is not accurate. But if you look at an airplane like Rare Bear, you know, they're getting 4,400 horsepower out of it with nitrous oxide when, when they did the record. You know, they don't run that anymore. Um, but they want a, a colder day because they're more dependent on horsepower, the 4,400 horsepower to pull, you know, the airframe around. Whereas the Mustang's got obviously not 4400 horsepower but it's got a real clean airframe behind it so for a a clean aerodynamic airframe to go through the air quickly we want thin you know hot air so we're looking for a a hot temperature Uh, we want to be at a high elevation the air is thinner already uh, and you get a higher true air speed so uh, unfortunately actually we had great temperatures the day we did it It was about 94 95 degrees uh, working out to a density altitude about 13,000 feet but uh, wildfires in the pacific northwest were pretty strong at the time and although it's funny looking back at these videos that come out now it's like the visibility doesn't look that bad but man it was about four miles of visibility and 
when you're diving in on this course and you can't see eight miles ahead of you, you know, but your warp speed, it's a <laughs> kind of like a hold on. When am I going to pop into this, you know, visibility wise? Um, so hot days, you know, high altitude, that's what we're looking for. Now, can you tell us a little bit about there was a decision you had to make around uh, your oil temperature, oil pressure, right? Yeah. Oil temperature, I think. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, you bet. Um, you know, first of all, anytime you've got these engines at full throttle, you're expecting an engine failure. Well, even when you're cruising one, for that matter, it's 75-year-old stuff. So um, you don't take that for granted. And now, obviously, in this scenario, with uh, we joke about a race engine. Uh, it's got a wick or a fuse and we don't know how long that fuse is but once you light it you know you better look out because it's going to go at some point and hopefully you're lucky enough to get through what you're trying to do and land and um, unfortunately on this case we actually did a practice run uh, I don't know about a week prior to setting the record and the uh, engine sneezed and backfired at 100 inches manifold pressure um, so that was a good kind of a not that I wanted the training <laughs> but uh, setting up for using that runway for an emergency anyway we get, get to this uh now we're making the passes. We, you know, made the first pass, and kind of throughout the whole time, the manifold pressure was off. Uh, we were about 15, 16 inches low of what we should have been, so the engine didn't seem 100% um, at the time, anyway. But the oil pressure in between laps three and four. Uh, so, so let me back up. A three-kilometer record is measured uh, four passes in alternating directions, and then the average speed is taken over those four passes. So, you know, pass one would be northbound, pass two southbound, three northbound, four southbound, and you're done. Um, we're in between the third and fourth pass, and the oil pressure dropped very quickly from the normal 120 pounds that we're running down to 70 pounds. And usually when you lose oil pressure in that type of an engine, it's a sign of something catastrophic getting ready to go. Uh, and that could be a whole host of issues. Uh, that was an issue that led to my uh, dad crashing the Red Baron was uh, uh, oil pressure. Uh, lost and uh, you know the propeller is hydromatic so it's oil controlled and it goes flat it's worse than having full flaps and now you can't make the runaway so not that that's going through your head at the time but okay oil pressure just dropped so we presented pretty quickly with you know a few options one being you can declare an emergency there and land uh, which negates the entire run uh, I knew to the forecast was not looking good for the next after two days or something, it was going to start getting cold. Again, temperatures that we don't want for a speed record because we had a second engine. Um, so declare an emergency and kind of throw everything away, which I didn't want to do. Um, these turnarounds that we we're making in between passes would take us out about eight miles, and that's so that you could keep, you know, maybe a, a G and a half to two Gs making these turnarounds. If you pulled a four G turn, it would bleed a lot of speed off, uh, like at Reno. So that was the next option: was do I go out the eight miles? so that I can set up my normal course and risk, you know, if the engine blows up out there, I'm not going to make it back to the runway potentially. Uh, you know, that's another bad scenario. Or, or the third scenario, which is what I went for, was, you know, now only being a couple miles off the end of the approach path, just, you know, crank the airplane around, uh, pull four, four Gs, get the thing pointed back towards the course so that if anything, you know, comes apart in that moment, you know, I have three kilometers to just bleed the speed off, get a time, and then see what happens. So that was the option I went for. And, and again, that, it would have been nice to you know sit here, have a cup of coffee, and try to th think about what that is. But all that happens in, in less than you know, two seconds or something, just boom, 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 boom. Um, so pulled it back around, made the final pass, and then Im immediately pulled steeply into like a downwind for landing, at which time the engine, you could, these noises were <laughs> not very happy. Uh, you know, went to use the throttle, and it would, the engine would surge and not react. So it was... Um, 
yeah, I think the right call. Um, in hindsight, I don't know. It's it's one of those tough decisions. Usually, engines fail uh, at the first power reduction, so maybe it would have lasted going out eight miles, and having not bled the speed off, you know, it was two miles an hour slower um, than the average speed we wanted. But if it's what do they say? If if ifs and buts or candies and nuts, we'd all have a. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so you know that was the decision that was made, um, and you know rightfully so. We had to pull the engine. We she sheared a bunch of studs on the nose case. Uh, we lost compression in both uh, banks, the cylinder banks. Um, so, oh well. Hopefully, we get another crack at it. Yeah, absolutely. We'll be we'll be watching <laughs> yeah. for sure. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. Um, so you, you know, as as an experienced um, Warbird pilot, you've gotten to fly uh, quite a few um, unique types of aircraft. Uh, what are some of your favorites? Uh, Mustang's always going to be a favorite. Uh, it's one of those airplanes that you can just close your eyes and jump into. Um, you know where everything's laid out. Uh, it's a really well laid out airplane. Um, but I think some of the more nostalgic ones, the Spitfire is a, really just an incredible airplane to fly. Uh, it's so funny going away from an American cockpit, which is very ergonomic. You know, the flap and the gear handles on the left-hand side, the T6 or a Mustang, and then the throttle. Um, it just makes sense. Now you get into a Spitfire. Uh, you know, and the gear handle's on the right, and it's got the spade grip, of course. The flap handle's a lever on the dash, and it's just kind of like, well, how do you do this? You're, you know, changing hands on takeoff, and this wasn't, you know, it was like, oh, let's just add a flap switch here. Well, that doesn't make any sense. So it's it's funny flying something British uh, or the Spitfire in that sense. It's got air brakes, so it's differential. It's it's Everything's just quirky. Um, but you get the airplane up off the ground into the air, and, and it's it's another airplane. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to fly a couple of Mark I Spitfires, a couple of Mark Vs and a Mark 9, uh, and the handling qualities of the airplanes are, are so different, but so very well balanced. Uh, it's really just a dream to be able to fly something like that. Um, was the Mark 9 the one with the uh, the one that go out and hunt down V weapons and stuff? Uh, like that, that was the Mark 14, so okay, I get to yeah. fly one of those. Yeah, yeah. The, the, it's got the larger Griffin engine, yeah. uh, and that's yeah. supposed to just be an absolute brute to fly behind. <laughs> uh, it looks like yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> you can't use full power for takeoff because there's so much torque that you don't have a big enough tail, so... Uh, it, it's an interesting airplane. Um, I've also got a chance to fly our, our museum's P-26 P-Shooter, uh, which is, uh, you know, 1340, the, the first all-metal monoplane that the U.S. produced, you know, by Boeing. Uh, and it's uh, not a constant speed propeller. It's fixed pitch, so the thing's just slow to take off, and then it's real uh, noisy, but it, it's it's quirky. It's got its own personality also. So I think those two airplanes would be at the top of my list. Are there an, any memorable uh, first flights that you've done, first flights after restoration? Uh, I've, I've done a few of them, and fortunately, no. Uh, okay. You know, they've, they've, <laughs> yeah, all, sure. they've all gone according <laughs> to plan with uh, minor adjustments. Um, yeah, even with the racing, we did a lot of first flights on you know, new engines and that sort of thing, but uh, you know, knock on wood, I've been pretty lucky so far. Well, what about any unique types where there really aren't too many living pilots who have flown them, like that P-26? Was that, was that unique? Y yeah, in that sense, you try and, uh, you know, which is... Uh, Again, why it's not the first airplane you fly, but you kind of build off the experience that you have uh, flying other types and other things that could potentially go wrong. Or um, So my father flew it, and then uh, Uncle John Maloney, he also had flown it. But uh, a lot of the advice that my dad gave me, especially growing up, was that – well, he, he didn't give me any advice. And his, his thought was that if you learn something for yourself, you'd have a better experience for it and you know, be a better person for that. So it's kind of one of those, oh, you'll figure it out type of scenarios. Um <laughs> But it, it, everyone always kind of cringed about the landing characteristics of that airplane, and, and it is funky. Uh, so it, after I got the first one under the belt, then it kind of settled down a little bit. But it's just a real spongy, real narrow gear. 
Um, uh, so, yeah, I guess in that sense, you just rely. Lescom's actually a great tailwheel trainer. It's real sporty on landing, or can be. So uh, it, it was a good trainer for that type of stuff. Well, and, and one of the things I wanted to call out is when we're talking about the aircraft uh, out in, in Chino, like we said earlier, a wonderful museum there, the Plains of Fame Air Museum. Um, it's just an amazing collection. Probably the, I would I would argue the oldest flying museum in the country. Yeah, probably um, so. And uh, and what I loved about it was, like I said, uh, Ed Maloney started it uh, back before this was cool. I mean, these airplanes were were being cut up, and he was just picking out airplanes that he wanted to save. And your grandma didn't always uh, like that. Yeah, I was telling Chris <laughs> last night, like uh, you know, we all were like, oh man, that's so great. And, yeah, my grandmother had other thoughts about that. You know, <laughs> after there ends up being there's a Japanese zero and a Messerschmitt two sixty two and a one sixty three in the backyard. It's kind of like. <laughs> <laughs> or actually, it was a 162, not a 163. Anyway, just hey, you need to find a place to store your, you know, your junk because it's taking over my backyard. But uh, you know, it's one of those hindsight things. And, and she was very supportive of him, also. Um, but yeah, it's just a different era now, you know. And you th- yeah. think about the airplanes that are flying. My dad talks about this a lot. Is you know, when they were restoring airplanes to fly, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, they were still new airplanes. They were only 20 years old at that time, you know. And you look at them; those airplanes now they're 70 years old. So it's a different. Uh, different era well something that somebody brought up that i thought was interesting is we were talking about the memphis bell you know famed b-17 flew 25 missions over europe and they're like rel- you know by today's standards like it was actually a low time airplane still is yeah you know because it never it never flew anything outside of military flights you right know? and then it was parked and it's been parked since the 40s and they're like you know <laughs> by today's standards that's a really low Lowest time, time airplane. B-17, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly but if anybody gets a chance you have to go to the museum have to go to the air show. Um, it, it, there are certain places, uh, and selfishly I'll say, there are certain places in aviation you just have to go. And I, selfishly I'll say Oshkosh, Duxford, and and Cheeto is, is certainly one of those. Yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, hopefully we'll have a mosquito at the air show this year. Um, we're looking forward to getting one of those at, for the air show. But uh, like Chris said, it's about 40 airplanes flying, and it's an all-day event. Um, you know, very seldomly. Actually, on the West Coast, you're not going to see that anywhere else. So it, yeah. it's a good mix of airplanes. And you guys do great stuff out there. I mean, everything you've done with your ball turret gunner, Wilbur, and uh, this guy, he's an awesome guy. Yeah, he's and, phenomenal. Um, but thank you for coming out here. Thank you for taking the time to come out and be our speaker here in the museum this month. Glad you, we, we got you out into some snow. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, it's, it, it really is a privilege and an honor to be here. So I thank, thank all of you for inviting me. It's, uh, I, I was thinking about that last night. Last time I was here was about 13 years ago So at the museum. So it's a you know, great excuse to come back out. And uh, it, it really is a fantastic facility. I need to start coming back out here more often. Well, we won't argue with that. So great to have you. And for all of you listening at home, please uh, continue to listen to The Green Dot. We can't do it without your support. Uh, please leave us reviews on uh, iTunes. Or wherever you get your hot and fresh uh, uh, podcast every day, uh, continue to uh, send in uh, uh, your feedback to uh, to here at EAA because uh, I can tell you we do a lot with it. it. It really helps support the programming here and helps us get people like Steve to come out and join us. So uh, thank you guys so much, and we'll see you next time when you're cleared to land on the Green Dot. <laughs>